1: a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
0: Wow, well, our role as healthcare providers, even my role as a non-pharmacist, non-physician, someone in communications that concentrates on giving amazing information, great information developed by our pharmacists through the Pharmacy Podcast Network, partnerships with Pharmacy Times Continuing Education has been paramount. It's been so critical to getting good information out in podcast form to our pharmacists through this amazing time in healthcare. And think about it. We've all been part of the collective getting through the pandemic the last two years. The changing role of our pharmacists in COVID 19 treatment has been um, just amazing. Seeing how uh, incredible our community pharmacists have been, our health system pharmacists have been as key uh, healthcare providers in this. And to that's what we're going to be really communicating and talking about today. If you're listening, you're driving, you're jogging, you're doing something, we're going to have a, a great show notes, connections back to PTCE Pharmacy Connect for your continuing education needs. Uh, COVID-19 is acute, sometimes severe respiratory illness. A bit of a, a mystery, obviously, when we first heard about this, I got covid Myself, I experienced something I never experienced before with the loss of my taste and my smell. And then I got the vaccine and um and have have been well very since. Um I've talked to so many pharmacists who understand at a completely upper level of how to best control this in in their communities. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Lisa Dumko and Dr. Lacey Warden to the pharmacy podcast. PTC Pharmacy Connect. So excited that you're both here today.
2: Hello, thanks for having me today. My name is Lisa Dumko. I'm the antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist and PGY2 infectious disease pharmacy residency program director at Mercy Health St. Mary's in Grand Rapids, Michigan.
3: And hello, everyone. My name is Lacey Warden. I am a current infectious disease pharmacy resident at Mercy Health St. Mary's Hospital here in Grand Rapids, Michigan.
0: So listen, we know things are changing. We know that there have been um, control mechanisms put into place to help us best control the spread of COVID-19. We've become kind of numb to it in some ways because there's been so much information. Some of that information out on the internet, we understand, is run amuck in ways. And then on the other side of the fence is the CDC and the... Um, the, the providers of evidence-based uh, tracking of information. I always, of course, think of pharmacists and what you bring to the table to lead our public and lead, and help lead each other, help uh, other uh, pharmacists understand what's uh, what's most necessary to understand. Just cross that two-year mark into the COVID-19 pandemic. But every week, I mean, honestly, sometimes even daily, it seems like we're still seeing changes. We're still dealing with new things that we have to learn as practitioners, as providers, as pharmacists. The new information coming out, it's kind of daunting. Could you tell us a little bit more about the current landscape of COVID-19 in the country and where you think we are moving in the next couple of months? I'm going to start out with Lisa.
2: Thanks, Todd. Yes. So, of course, with any virus, a major concern with COVID 19 has been the development of mutations and its genetic makeup, which could make it resistant to currently available vaccinations, as well as our emerging treatment options. Since the initial alpha strain of COVID 19, we've seen several variants become actually the dominant strain across the world over the past two years. While the delta variant, which was prevalent, Late spring to late fall of 2021 was considered one of the more transmissible and more deadly strains to date. More recently, the Omicron variant has become prevalent across the world, including the United States. This strain appeared to be highly transmissible, however, causing more mild disease than its predecessor, the Delta variant. Lacey, what do you think about the Delta variant versus the Omicron variant?
3: Yeah, I completely agree with all of that, Lisa. And I also think it's important to mention that we have seen my more widespread vaccinations as well as available emerging outpatient treatment options as Omicron has moved to becoming the more prevalent strain. Yeah, just to add to that too, in the United States, cases had most recently
2: been trending downward across most of the country. However, and I'm sure most of the listeners have seen this in the news in the last week or two, a subtype of the Omicron variant called the ba 2 strain has now become prevalent throughout the country, causing concern that we may see another possible surge in cases and hospitalizations in the coming weeks. Additionally, another highly transmissible Omicron subvariant, Xe, has also been identified and is currently being monitored closely across parts of Europe and Asia. It's likely only a matter of time before this strain is detected in the United States and may also become dominant.
3: And one last thing to add to that, Lisa, as well, is that we are already starting to see an uptick in the cases here in several states, including here in Michigan. Um, So prior to this past week or so, I think we were all getting a little bit more hopeful um, with the recent decreases in case counts across the country that there might be this shift that COVID-19 was moving from less of a pandemic to more of an endemic, similar to how we would view like the influenza virus. Um, But we are still seeing some of these restrictions loosen up worldwide, such as opening up for traveling, less masking, as well as decreased testing requirements. Yes, absolutely. And
2: while an opening up of the world seems great, it has really been made more possible by the availability of some variant active outpatient treatment options, including monoclonal antibody therapies and novel oral agents, which only recently became available through the FDA emergency use authorization programs. We will focus on these outpatient treatment options in more detail over the course of today's podcast, highlighting the National Institutes of Health or NIH guideline recommendations um, and those therapies included within.
3: And while treatment rather than prevention has been the main focus of the talk today, um, we would be remiss in stating that vaccination and prevention are still our key points for pharmacists to be knowledgeable on and to educate their patients about.
2: Yes, that's a really great point, Lacey, because Vaccination has been shown to really decrease the burden and severity of COVID-19. There's still a few unanswered questions though, such as at this time, we still don't know what boosters are going to look like uh, moving forward. And unfortunately, we're still in need of an effective pediatric vaccination for children under the age of five.
0: Every time I get sick, it's usually after a trip to um, the airport, Um, not within the last three years, thank goodness but I like the masks. I really do. Going on an airplane or being in an airport and having my mask, it's almost like a my my security blanket anymore. And and I think that we're going to continue to see an evolution of good, high, better hygiene, hand-washing, understanding that this is more prevalent. This is where we are now. So we just have to deal with it. And as healthcare leaders and pharmacists leading the messaging, I wanna kind of turn to therapies. so let's get started. Can you give us a quick overview of the therapies you're gonna be discussing today?
2: Of course, Todd. So the NIH guidelines for the treatment of non-hospitalized patients are constantly changing as new data arise regarding different therapies and their activity against current and emerging variants. The guidelines are currently divided into two parts, so
3: preferred and also alternative therapies, and they are listed in order of preference. Yes, and important to mention that while all patients should be offered supportive care such as over-the-counter symptom management, um, COVID-19 active therapies such as oral or IV antivirals and monoclonal antibodies are only recommended to be offered in patients who are considered high risk for progression resulting in hospitalization or death from COVID-19. Yes, and these are patient populations that these current
2: therapies have been studied in and who are most likely to benefit, especially considering that most of these therapies have been on allocation or in short supply.
3: Completely agree with all of that, Lisa. So currently, we have two preferred therapy options in the outpatient setting. And in order of preference, those are the oral antiviral ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelvir, or more commonly known by its brand name pexlovid, as well as the IV antiviral remdesivir, or brand name veclurri. Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up, Lacey. Um, and so...
2: We are mentioning both the generic and brand names here, and the ritonavir-boosted nermotelvir, which also known by the brand name Paxlovid, that one is exceptionally difficult to say, and it's one of the very few drugs that we actually see called out in a national guideline listed by its brand name. Um, So the guideline does use the name Paxlovid, and that's actually what we'll be using um, for the purposes of this discussion for um, the rest of the time going forward, just as this is the more well-recognized name of this medication. We also have two alternative therapy options available to our outpatients, um, which should be considered based on patient-specific factors, and those are the intravenous monoclonal antibody therapy, bebtilovimab, and the oral antiviral molnupiravir, which is also known by the brand name Legevrio. So as you can see, some of the medications that we'll be discussing today are more commonly known by their generic names, some by their brand names, um, When we can, we'll be referring to these medications by their generic name as much as possible throughout the discussion today.
0: So I heard you both saying that these medications are only purposeful or being directed at or targeting our high-risk patients. I think of my own parents um, who are both very healthy. I think of people that are suffering with diabetes or, or might be overweight or already have a precondition. I'm assuming that that is what we consider the high-risk patient, but that's why we have two amazing pharmacists here. So could you kind of tell us what qualifies a patient as high-risk?
3: Todd, completely agree. That is probably one of the most common questions that we get is whether or not their patients qualify from providers. So Luckily, the NIH and CDC do have defined certain patient populations, identifying patients who are high risk for progression to more severe disease, um, respiratory failure, or hospitalization and death. And these can be found on the CDC's website. um, And one of the largest high-risk groups include those who are immunocompromised, so those receiving chemotherapy, immunosuppressing agents due to an organ transplantation, um, HIV or AIDS, or patients who have immune deficiencies to name a few. Outside of that very large group of
2: patients, um, additional high-risk patients include those who are pregnant, all patients over the age of 65, or any age patient who is considered obese with a BMI of 30 or greater, those with structural lung disease, current or previous smokers, those with cardiovascular disease or other heart conditions, chronic renal or hepatic disease, diabetes, or those with neurological, neurocognitive, or mental health disorders, which is a lot of patients when you think about it.
0: 330 million Americans out there, um, absolutely. And I think mental health is really interesting because that brings in a whole nother level of caring for ourselves, caring for our kids and our family members and our friends. We all have to be very cognizant and un- understanding how mental health plays into this. Let's dive into some of these current guidelines, the recommendations, the therapies and, and the data that support the current and emerging trends uh, options for COVID-19 in the outpatient setting. Can you give us an overview of how the landscape of the monoclonal uh, antibody therapies has changed over the time, uh, since the beginning of this uh, pandemic, within over the two years in in treatment of Um, COVID-19? Really curious to see where we are right now.
2: Yes, and understanding the different monoclonal antibody therapies is a really great place to start when we talk about therapies um, because the preferred monoclonal antibody therapy has continued to change as the circulating variants have changed. In the outpatient setting, monoclonal antibodies were really our first effective therapy available to treat patients with COVID-19 who were stable enough for treatment in the outpatient setting as their major efficacy endpoint was to prevent progression of disease or need for hospitalization. Um, they are not indicated for the treatment of patients with COVID-19 um, who have already progressed to needing supplemental oxygen or hospitalization. So really, we want to limit their use to those who are still eligible for outpatient treatment. The first monoclonal antibody given FDA Emergency Youth Authorization, or EUA, was bamlanivimab, which was in November of 2020. The EUA authorized bamlanivimab as a single-dose infusion for both treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 and post-exposure prophylaxis in high-risk patients. At the time of its EUA authorization, the major circulating variants were different than what they currently are. We saw the combination of bamlanivimab and another monoclonal antibody um, called atesivimab become authorized shortly after, in February 2021,
3: which had a higher likelihood of targeting the circulating variants of interest. Similarly, another monoclonal antibody combination, casarevimab and imdevimab, received FDA EUA in November of 2020 for both treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 as well as post-exposure prophylaxis and high... Like the previously mentioned monoclonal antibody combinations, these were the mainstay of the outpatient treatment for nearly a year until the Omicron variant became the primary circulating variant here in the U.S. The combination casirivimab and imdevimab um, was also had shown significantly decreased activity against Omicron as well as any subsequent variants that have come up so far. So therefore, the EUA has been revoked here within the United
2: States. Yes. Yeah, so just to summarize, so both the EUA for bamlanivimab, atesimab, casirivimab, and imdevimab, they have all been withdrawn at this time. Um, Another agent to mention is Sotrovimab, which was the main monoclonal antibody therapy used for the treatment of COVID-19 more recently, so from mid-December 2021 until late March of this year in 2022, and it had demonstrated efficacy against the circulating Omicron variant at that time, However, similar to the other monoclonal antibodies that we just mentioned, the EUA for Sotrovimab was recently revoked within all U.S. states and territories due to significantly reduced activity against the subvariant, the BA2, which is currently estimated to be responsible for more than 75% of all cases nationally.
3: Yes, as Lisa mentioned, this is a very recent hot-off-the-press change has only occurred within the past two weeks for this. And so one of the major differences between the FDE's EUA, EUA for map that we do want to highlight, though it has been removed, is the main difference from its predecessors only recommending it in patients um, who have symptom onset within seven days. So prior to this update, um, monoclonal antibodies were recommended to be used within 10 days of symptom onset.
2: Yeah, and that's a really important point that you brought up, Lacey. We suspect that this change was reflective of the supply of strobimab at the time and also due to data demonstrating that pharmacologic therapies for COVID-19 are most effective when started earlier
3: in disease progression. So seven days rather than 10 makes sense. Yes, and I think that we were seeing that too from just our standpoint, seeing patients benefit more if they got it early on as well. Completely agree. Um, so just briefly moving into some of the data supporting the previous use of citrovimab and the outpatient treatment of COVID-19. Um, it received authorization based on an interim analysis of data from the Comet ICE study, which was a randomized placebo-controlled study evaluating efficacy of a 500 milligram dose of citrovimab given via IV within five days of symptom onset in 583 non-hospitalized adults with mild to moderate infections. The study used death or greater than 24 hours of hospitalization through day 29 following administration as the primary endpoint and found an 85% reduction in the primary endpoint for patients who received citrovimab versus those who did not. Through in vitro testing, citrovimab has been able to demonstrate that it did retain activity against all of the tested variants at that time, um, including the Omicron variant, which is why it, it led to being the mainstay of monoclonal antibody treatment um, from December to this, to this most recently for outpatient setting. Citrovimab is administered as a single 500 milligram dose via IV infusion over 15 minutes, which is another change to mention um, for 30 minute infusion time, which may have helped some of our infusion centers with throughput. Um, There is still that one hour post-dose patient monitoring requirement, which has been consistent with all of our other previous monoclonal antibody therapies as well.
2: Yeah, so those are some great points that you brought up, Lacey, especially the 15 minutes versus 30 minutes for throughput, um, which has been a major concern with all monoclonal antibodies. Yes, and another final important thing to point out about sochovimab was that it was still being studied at the time of its EUA withdrawal um, for several things. So first, um, ways to de- further decrease time of administration, so the Comet TAIL trial um, looking at non-inferiority of an intramuscular versus intravenous route of administration, really to try and increase access for patients. Um, There was also a high dose Sotrovimab being studied for the prevention of COVID-19, so not necessarily as a treatment option, but for prevention, the data has not yet been published, Um, as well as even looking at Sotrovimab um, for inpatient treatment um, with the recovery trial, and we're not sure at this point if any of this data will still come out. So, as the COVID-19 virus continues to change and new variants continue to arise, it will be interesting to see if any of the previously EUA authorized monoclonal antibody therapies um, become available or make their way back into our treatment armamentarium. At this time, however, none of the withdrawn monoclonal antibody therapies have been reintroduced as a treatment option, continuing to demonstrate reduced or no activity against the newer variants. So that's a brief history of the early effective treatment strategies with monoclonal antibody therapy in the outpatient setting. Lacey, now let's talk about what monoclonal antibody th- therapy options we currently have and the evidence behind
3: those. Yeah, so we do have one monoclonal body, monoclonal antibody option currently, um, which received FDA eua in February of 2022, similarly to previously utilized monoclonal antibodies. Um, Bebtelobumab is authorized for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in patients high risk for progression to severe disease or hospitalization. It is also authorized for patients 12 years of older and at least 40 kilograms for a single dose IV infusion of 175 milligrams. This monoclonal antibody differs from previous ones as it can be infused over just 30 seconds via IV push. However, it does still require that one hour post-dose monitoring period that I mentioned previously. And that's a great point, Lace. This very short infusion time with bebtilovimab
2: is really key to highlight as throughput at infusion centers has been a huge concern during surges, and it may provide an opportunity for infusion centers to provide more patients with monoclonal antibody therapy. However, while the administration time may be significantly reduced, prep time of these agents, which on average can take 30 to 60 minutes from start to delivery, and the post-dose monitoring and additional availability of nursing staff at infusion centers
3: still remain critical factors to consider with regard to how many patients can be treated per day. Absolutely, Lisa, and I think all of these concerns and considerations um, are teams that our teams mustn't be aware of because of the monoclonal antibody therapy as they keep changing um, and keeping in mind the E-ways can and will change as data becomes more available. Um, We've seen infusion times shorten in certain antibodies that have switched preferred um, routes of administration from IV infusion to subcutaneous or intramuscular. Keeping up with the ever-changing data can be a full-time job. Um, There's also FDA reporting requirements to ensure use meets EUA criteria as well as help with equitable allocation, which must be considered um, for all the teams as well.
2: Yes. And just as a reminder, it should be noted that bebtilobumab is currently listed as an alternative therapy for COVID-19 in the NIH guidelines, rather than a preferred therapy, as was the case with previous monoclonal antibodies. Um, So this is really important for pharmacists to be aware of, as this agent should only be considered if the patient does not have access to a preferred therapy. And we're going to go into further details about the guideline preferred therapies in just a few
3: moments. So with that being said, we'll briefly just talk about some of the data that supports the use of bebtilovimab in the outpatient setting for treatment of COVID-19 currently. So it has demonstrated in vitro activity that it maintains neutralization for all of the COVID-19 variants except for the mu variant. So it does have activity against BA2, which we had previously mentioned, um, and is currently being described as the most prevalent variant circulating nationally including here within the U.S. It was authorized based on data from the BLAZE-4 trial, which was a phase two clinical trial included both low and high risk patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 infection. Um, This study was a combination of randomized as well as open label portion. Patients received either bebtilovimab monotherapy or in combination with previous monoclonal antibodies, bamlanivimab and edisivumab, versus placebo, so three different arms. That, and all of the therapies were administered within three days of a positive test. Um, all of the patients were unvaccinated. The only thing I will mention is that the patients in the placebo group did have a higher um, COVID-19 seropositivity at baseline compared to the treatment arms. And the primary endpoint was persistently high viral load by day seven, which they defined by a viral load greater than 5.27. So for the results, they had 21% of the patients in placebo still having persistently high viral load compared to 13% in the monotherapy group and 14% in the combination group, respectively. Secondary endpoints included COVID-19-related hospitalization or death by day 29, and these were very similar between all of the groups. So 1.6% in the placebo, 2.4% in the combination therapy group, and 1.6% in the patients who received bebtilovimab um, monotherapy.
2: Thanks for reviewing that data, Lacey. So it is important to note that while bebtolovimab is currently considered active against the circulating Omicron subvariants, there are no clinical efficacy data on the use of bebtolovimab to treat patients who are at higher risk of progressing to severe COVID-19, including hospitalization or mortality. Um, And so this is really why Bebtilovimab currently carries the designation of an alternative rather than a preferred therapy against COVID-19 and should only be used um, when the preferred treatment options are not available to use or clinically appropriate
0: so you noted that one hour post infusion monitoring time for each of the agents but what are the important safety concerns that pharmacists should be aware of when educating patients who may be eligible uh, who may be that, that eligible patient for monoclonal antibody antibody therapy
2: that's a great question, and it's one that pharmacists are likely to be asked frequently as the medication experts on the team. Um, so, prior to placing an order for these infusions, a member of the care team is required um, by the FDA EUA to review the FDA's fact sheet for patients and caregivers with the patient and their caregiving team. Um, so, this will cover the pertinent safety concerns of these medications, um, of which the post dose or intradose infusion related hypersensitivity reactions are the most common and worrisome adverse effects. These occur most commonly in the first one hour after completion of the infusion, um, which is the whole reason for the patient to stay for the one hour monitoring, um, but they may actually occur for up to 24 hours afterward. These reactions are rare, but can range from mild hypotension, rash, or fatigue to severe with difficulty breathing, chest pain,
3: or angioedema. When these events happen, supportive or emergency care may be needed. Um, another common safety question that we receive about monoclonal antibodies is whether or not they are safe in pregnancy, and thankfully they are, because as we, Mentioned previously, pregnant patients are considered high risk for progression to severe illness. Um, So these therapies are typically one of our go-tos for patients who are pregnant. Um, They are safe with all levels of renal function, including dialysis patients, and and luckily does not have any significant drug-drug interactions, making them an ideal option for patients who are receiving complex medication regimens as well.
0: All right. So let's change focus for just a second. Let's discuss the other treatment options that are currently available uh, to multiple care teams um, who are really concerned with this and patients in the outpatient setting.
2: So. This is gonna be uh, the next portion of our talk, but we're excited to talk about these therapies with a group of pharmacists on this podcast because they are they can be thought of as very difficult by outpatient providers, and it's an area where pharmacists can really have an impact on patient care. So we want to focus first on the two novel oral options that have been recently um, approved via FDA emergency use authorization as of December of 2021, so very new therapies. Um, so the first is a combination of nirmitrevivir and ritonavir, um, known more commonly by its brand name of Paxlovid, as well as malnupiravir. So Paxlovid is currently the first-line preferred option for outpatient therapy of COVID-19 in high-risk patients, while malnupiravir is currently considered an alternative therapy.
3: Yeah, so I think it's important to start with Paxlovid. So as you had previously mentioned, Lisa, it does consist of two drugs, a new protease inhibitor that directly blocks the COVID-19 protease to prevent the replication, combined with ritonavir, which is a well-known cytochrome P or CYP3A4 inhibitor. Um, It comes packaged in a five-day blister pack requiring three tablets to be taken twice daily for patients with normal renal and hepatic functions. The clinical data were extremely promising with the EPIC-HR study, which was a phase two um, and three double-blind randomized controlled trial that included high-risk, unvaccinated patients within three days of symptom onset. The results demonstrated an 89% decreased risk of severe COVID-19 disease progression compared to the placebo without significant concerns for adverse events, with only altered taste in 5.6% of the patients and diarrhea in 3.1% of the patients being the most commonly reported adverse event. The number needed to treat for the composite outcome for hospitalization or mortality within 28 days was determined to be 18 I think it's
2: safe to say that we're all really happy to have such a effective as well as well tolerated option available for patients to take orally. Um, However, it's not an ideal medication for everyone and there are a few very important things to keep in mind. So first and foremost are the drug interactions which result from the CYP3A4 inhibitor included in the regimen. In addition to the CYP3A4 inhibition, ritonavir also inhibits P-glycoprotein and is an inducer of other enzyme pathways such as UGT1, CYP2B6, and CYP2C9. So a lot of drug-drug interactions to keep in mind here and several drugs such as amiodarone, clopidogrel, and tacrolimus to name a few are actually contraindicated with many more drugs requiring dose modifications and monitoring. So safety data in pregnancy or lactation is also lacking currently um, as all study participants were encouraged to use effective contraception. So keeping in mind that ritonavir can decrease the efficacy of oral contraceptive therapy.
3: Yes, Lisa, and I think this has been a huge opportunity for us and pharmacists all over to be involved in assessing drug interactions and identifying patients who would not be appropriate for treatment of COVID-19 with this specific medication. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is that it does require a real dose adjustment. So for patients with an EGFR that is less than 60 milliliters per minute, the dose should be reduced to two tablets twice daily, which does physically require the dispensing pharmacy to remove two tablets from each blister pack and place a sticker directly over the missing tablets. And it is contraindicated in patients with an EGFR of less than 30. So those on dialysis, as well as patients who have severe hepatic impairment as well.
2: Yeah, those are great points to bring up. So this drug is very limited in terms of who we can safely prescribe it for. So moving to our other oral option, Molnupiravir, it has less drug interactions and contraindications, but it also does have some important characteristics that we need all pharmacists to be aware of. Molnupiravir is a pro-drug that is converted to RNA-like building blocks that induce serial mutations to prevent the virus from replicating. It's four capsules or 800 milligrams taken twice a day for five days. So again, that five day duration similar to Paxlovid. The MOVE-OUT trial was the phase three double-blinded randomized control trial that evaluated the risk of hospitalization or death from any cause within 29 days of treatment in patients who started therapy within five days of symptom onset. Patients in this study were unvaccinated, non-hospitalized adults with mild to moderate confirmed COVID-19 infections. The study showed a reduction in hospitalization and death from any cause within 29 days of treatment resulting in a composite number needed to treat of 35 patients to prevent one of the composite endpoint. Again, without any significant adverse effects reported.
3: Thanks for that review, Lisa. I think it's important to keep in mind that there are a significant number of patients who desire oral therapy and who may not be eligible for Paxlovid, and that malnupiravir is a better option than no treatment, especially in the unvaccinated population. So I definitely agree with you. So we do not have to worry about drug
2: drug interactions with this medication. We also don't have to worry about renal or hepatic function um, limitations with malnupiravir. But there, again, are a few points to keep in mind. So first is the risk of teratogenicity due to the mechanism of action with this uh, medication. Molnupiravir is contraindicated in pregnancy, and it is recommended that women use contraception during treatment and for at least an additional four days after completing therapy. Even more significant, though, is counseling males on using appropriate contraception with treatment um, with this medication. And the current recommendation is actually for men to use appropriate contraception during treatment and for an additional three months after treatment, which that's very different than most of our other medications and a huge point for pharmacists to be able to counsel patients on. Um, Another important point to note is that Molnupiravir should not be used to anyone less than 18 years of age due to risk for bone and cartilage damage um, that was identified in animal trials.
3: Yeah, those are all very great points to mention, Lisa. Another concern that I would bring up with malnupiravir uh, based on the mechanism of action is um, the, fact, the theoretical concern for introduction of point mutations that could hypothetically result in subsequent COVID-19 stripes. However, this has not been demonstrated in clinical practice. Um, So that is a summary of what we currently have available for oral therapy. We do have um, another agent that is recommended for um, treatment of COVID-19. Remdesivir is currently considered preferred therapy for the treatment of COVID-19 by the NIH guidelines. So we do have a pretty long history with remdesivir as COVID-19 therapy has been recommended inpatient for a five-day course of treatment in hospitalized patients with mild to moderate infriction for quite some time. However, just recently, remdesivir was able to demonstrate um, utility in non-hospitalized high-risk patients based on the pine tree study. So this study was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that includes included non-hospitalized patients, and showed decreased risk of hospitalization and death with a three-day course of IV remdesivir administered within seven days of symptom onset. There was an 87% reduction in risk of hospitalization or death in patients, resulting in a number needed to treat of 22 patients. Remdesivir is also very well tolerated from a safety standpoint and has no significant drug interactions as well. Yes, those are great points to bring up
2: about remdesivir and a really good review. Um, so, but although the, def- the safety and efficacy data are promising with the early use of outpatient IV remdesivir, the biggest thing for us to consider has really been logistics and costs, which have a, been a barrier for many of our patients. So patients are required to either return to an infusion center daily for three days of therapy or have a home infusion center come into their home for three days of IV administration. For us, home infusion was a very limited option due to staffing shortages, as well as just finding an agency that was willing to enter the home of a COVID-19 positive patient. The consideration for having to place a peripheral line daily for three days or having a line in dwelling for three days also poses potential infectious risk to the patient, which must be carefully considered by teams. Another important consideration is that remdesivir is currently the only COVID-19 treatment option that carries a full FDA approval, and as such, it's the only therapy that currently has a potential cost to the patient associated with it.
3: Yeah, and we have found that in our experience for patients, um, we have had referred for this outpatient treatment. A J-code does exist for insurance billing purposes. However, there may still be a significant cost or copay that the patient is responsible for, limiting this option for many as well.
0: There are a lot of factors to con- consider. I can think of someone driving or exercising right now, they're listening in and they want to know, you know, what what to consider when choosing the best therapy for high-risk patients in the outpatient setting. And to summarize for our audience, if you had to place in order on the currently available treatment options, how would you arrange what would be the most important consideration for moving to the next line in therapy?
2: So per the current NIH guidelines, Paxlovid would be our first line Uh, therapy to consider, which is, again, our oral antiviral therapy. And the first thing to consider for providers is if the patient's within that five-day symptom onset. Um, Once the patient is within five days, then the the next biggest consideration are really those drug-drug interactions, um, which, again, can be significant, as well as potentially renal, issues, failure, or pregnancy. So if the patient meets any of the contraindications for Paxlovid, our next, again, preferred agent to consider is our IV antiviral, which is Remdesivir. And for this one, the patient needs to be within seven days of symptom onset. And the real key limiting stages of using this therapy would really be that consideration of the infusion center or home infusion for three days, having that peripheral IV line in for three days, as well as a potential significant cost of therapy for the patient. If any of those barriers aren't able to be overcome for the patient, then we would move to one of our two alternative therapies for patients. Oral malnupiravir, again, our oral antiviral, um, would likely be our next line therapy for most most patients, um, keeping in mind that it's not safe in pregnancy. And then for our patients who are pregnant, bebtilovimab becomes our final line therapy, where again, all other treatment options would likely be exhausted.
0: All right, once again, pharmacists bringing clarity. Um, and the correct pronunciation of our medications. What, what other, what other authorized therapies should pharmacists be aware of? Um, what, what are we leaving out? Are we missing anything?
3: Yeah, Todd. I think with COVID, we're always missing something. Um, but there is one more medication that we do want to quickly highlight, um, which is actually. Um, authorized for the prevention of COVID-19 and not a treatment option. Um, So tixagavimab combined with silgavimab or more commonly known as Evusheld, which is an investigational drug that the FDA has authorized for use in patients who are at least 12 years of age or older, weighing again at least 40 kilograms for pre-exposure prophylaxis for prevention of COVID-19. So it's intended for patients who are moderately to severely immunocompromised due to a medical condition who may not actually adequately have an immune response to the COVID-19 vaccination, or those who have contraindications to receiving the COVID-19 vaccine, such as a severe adverse reaction from initial vaccinations.
0: All right. So with the rapidly changing landscape of COVID-19 therapeutics in the outpatient setting, what is the biggest obstacle that you see in practice for patients to get started on treatment? Uh, Lisa and Lacey, can you kind of build upon that? So- we can give our listeners additional clarity?
2: Yeah, Tad. So first and foremost, I think awareness and education surrounding these medications is the biggest barrier that we've seen. Um, there are still pockets of prescribers and pharmacists that are unaware that there are available medications um, in the outpatient setting or exactly what these medications are. All
0: let right, right, let's, let's think of this from other pharmacists who may not be up to date. And that is it's that peer-to-peer trust that you have from one pharmacist to another. Uh, is there another is there any other piece of advice or anything else that you can share with our listeners that you want to give uh, to our pharmacists, our health system pharmacists, our community pharmacists who are implementing treatment strategies with these medications?
2: I think the biggest thing is it's really difficult to do this alone. Um, it takes a village really to be successful and to ensure equitable care for all patients and that the necessary education reaches all of our team members. So. Here, we've relied on the leadership of our infectious diseases pharmacy team and physician teams, along with the support of our infection control team. And we've been lucky at our institution to have our own infusion pharmacy services who have been able to provide a separate space for COVID-19 infusions of monoclonal antibody therapies, as well as increase our nurse staffing to this area for seven-day-a-week infusions during our most recent surge. So we've also worked closely with our infusion center pharmacists and nurses to continuously update referral forms um, and be available for questions as needed.
3: Yeah, Lisa, completely agree with all of that as well as we've been navigating this together over the past year. Um, We have been lucky enough as well to have a large ambulatory care pharmacy team um, with presence in most of our outpatient offices as well as strong outpatient antimicrobial stewardship presence. And we also cannot go on without giving our huge shout out to the community pharmacists um, and the community pharmacies who have been extremely impacted by these new medications. So these pharmacists not only had to quickly learn about these oral medications and also all of the ins and outs to their safety profile, but also keep up with the state requirements for prescribing. So we were very lucky to be able to partner locally with a corporation and meet with With members of their clinical team to iron out any issues with the electronic prescribing and following our state requirements early on to make sure that when we sent medications from our institution that they were checking all of the boxes that they needed to dispense them.
2: Yes, so the importance of developing partnerships and strongly working, strong working relationships between health systems, ambulatory care sites, and community pharmacies um, at this time can really not be understated in helping to develop efficient ways to get these medications to our patients.
0: Bravo. You guys, I tell you what, pharmacists are leading in public health and the pandemic has really shown our public and has shown even some of our policymakers of the power of our pharmacists, the capabilities. Let us do what pharmacists do best. So, all right, so let's discuss any further directions or additional ongoing research on COVID-19 therapies.
3: Yeah, Todd. So with regard to other treatment options in the pipeline, the FDA has created a special emergency program for possible coronavirus therapies called the Coronavirus Treatment Acceleration Program, or CTAP, which does work to move the novel treatments to patients as quickly as possible, while also critically evaluating the safety and efficacy data. So there are currently more than 650 drug development programs in the planning stages via this program with more than 470 trials reviewed by the FDA.
0: Final question. And this is kind of something that we always think about um, during the PTCE Pharmacy Connects. In wrapping up, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacist listeners today?
2: So first, before we even get to that, we just want to thank the listeners who've joined us today for this podcast. Um, I think our most important takeaway is that the data and the recommendations surrounding the outpatient treatment of COVID-19 are continuously changing, and they're changing very rapidly. So it's important to keep up with the current recommendations and to have trusted sources of information to follow.
3: Yes, I completely agree. And just to give a quick plug to one of our main ways to stay up to date, we've been Very thankful for the ID Twitter community and keeping us well informed with the latest updates in terms of data being published, EUA authorizations, as well as updates, as well as guideline changes.
0: I want to give a shout out to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team. They do an amazing job preparing us for these podcasts for our listeners Um, Thank you so much. We appreciate the time that you took to join us. A shout out to our listeners, a shout out to our most favorite providers out there, and also a shout out to our pharmacy technicians, the right hand of our pharmacists. Thank you so much for what you do. Please take a look at all of the PTCE Pharmacy Connects continuing education opportunities at Pharmacy Times CE, There's so much going on there, PharmacyTimes.org. Um, and with that, we thank you so much for tuning in for the, for the latest PTCE Pharmacy Connect.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to PharmacyTimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.